welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. The episode you're about to listen to is the first part of a two-part series with Professor Robert Talese. In the first part, as you'll hear, we get into a kind of off-the-cuff discussion about some of the epistemological groundings to the ideas that we're going to discuss, and I get into discussing some of my own views, and Professor Talese asks me some questions, which I then sort of give my responses to, and even though it wasn't exactly what we'd planned to talk about, I really, really liked this part of the conversation that will form the first part of the series, the second part, will more focus on his book, Overdoing Democracy, but it will be informed by some of the stuff that we talk about in this first part, so I think they work quite well together. And actually, the more I do this podcast, the more I sometimes think the the best stuff that we come up with is stuff that wasn't planned. And listening back to this, I thought it came out both like we were making sense, but also following a coherent argumentative structure throughout it. So I decided to make it a, a whole episode in its own right. And what we talk about is how various ideas from the philosophy of language, from sort of um, pragmatism or anti-foundationalism, might inform how we think about political disagreement and, like, what it is we're doing when we disagree. Is it, can we ever reasonably expect it to be productive? Are there some circumstances or spaces where it's not desirable or not appropriate. And yeah, I just, I, I really actually just felt this one went well. Um, as you'll hear, Professor Talese is a really experienced podcast guest, and I think he hits his talking points really well. But I also just liked, without meaning to sound too immodest, I thought like I did a pretty good job in this one of like communicating my sort of essential contestability worldview in a way that covers all of the essential points I need to cover, but also doesn't go on for too long. I do realise as a self-criticism I can sometimes be a bit waffly in my questions, and I'm often quite self-critical when I listen to those back, doing editing. But actually when I was listening to these back, I sort of felt like I was communicating the foundations of my philosophical worldview in a way that I was pretty happy with, actually. So I'm going to bring you all of this uncut, and you'll sort of see me in real time be like, okay, let's not go down this particular um, tangential path and then proceed to go down it pretty thoroughly. But I hope you will enjoy this as a genuine, engaged, um, spontaneous conversation. Like I say, these are sometimes some of the ones I like the most. So let's just get into it. By way of introduction, Robert Talese is the W. Alton Jones Professor of Philosophy and the Chair of the Philosophy Department at Vanderbilt University. He specialises in contemporary political philosophy, with a particular interest in democratic theory and political epistemology. In addition, he pursues topics in pragmatism, analytic philosophy, argumentation theory, and ancient philosophy. 
His uh, published books include Democracy After Liberalism, A Pragmatist Philosophy of Democracy, Pragmatism, A Guide for the Perplexed, Democracy and Moral Conflict, Reasonable Atheism, Pluralism and Liberal Politics, Why We Argue and How We Should, Engaging Political Philosophy, Pragmatism, Pluralism, and the Nature of Philosophy, and Overdoing Democracy, Why We Must Put Politics in Its Place, which is going to be the subject of this conversation, but we do, as I said, a considerable amount of groundwork trying to work out if we agree about ultimate epistemic foundations, and if we do, where we potentially come apart in how we see the political world differently, or perhaps merely just emphasise different elements of our political experience. And I'll, I'll throw this in just as an off-the-cuff suggestion. Throughout this whole conversation, I think there's almost just like an interesting college essay to be written about we clearly have political worldviews that emphasise different things. I think the interesting question is, can you identify substantive points of disagreement, or is it simply a difference of emphasis? And if so, you know, what's leading us to that? I'm not sure. I sort of recorded the whole conversation, listened to it all back, and it seems like we agree on a heck of a lot. It also seems like we want to emphasise different things. So if the audience, you know, I get some wonderful emails from y'all. If you have any thoughts on that question, I'd be absolutely fascinated to hear what a, um, a third party would think of this conversation. If you're newer to the podcast, or if you haven't listened to a bunch of my previous episodes, I will say a lot of the points I hit here, I give fairly brief overviews of, like, quite a lot of fairly complex stuff, and so all of the stuff I'm referencing here is available in much more depth in previous episodes. So just um, very, very quickly, we talk about anti-foundationalism and pragmatism. The two guests I've had on there to check out are Stanley Fish and Dale Martin, and we cover those issues in their episodes in considerably more depth. I reference Wittgenstein very quickly, but I move on. If you're interested in more on him, I have a two-parter on Wittgenstein with Rupert Reed, where we go into considerably more depth on that stuff. I mention uh, Michael Frieden, who I've talked about a bit on the podcast. Um, early on in season one, I have an episode with him where you can hear him in his own words, and I also talk a little bit about um, political ideology. There's two episodes to have a look at there. One is called What is Ideology with Matto Mildenberger and Jonathan Lear Maynard, and um, I also have a solo episode called Are Ideologies True? And so if you're not sure about something I'm saying, or you'd want me to hear me or a guest go into it more, those are definitely good resources to check out for that. So coming up next on the podcast, um, this episode is going to be followed pretty quickly by um, the second part, and in the second part we go into more of the applied and we look at how is what we're saying informed or supported or contradicted by various findings in uh, political science or contemporary political history 
and stuff like that. And we sort of really get into that. After that, I'm going to be starting a new big multi-part solo series, which I've still been playing around with the title, but is essentially looking at ideology specifically within political elites, because a lot of the questions, pushback, criticism I've got about some of my solo work seems to be querying my account of how ideologies behave within elites, or what ideological views elites tend to hold. And I went back and I've taken a much broader cross-section of history, like I start with ancient history. And it was originally just meant to be a one-parter, but I've written something up now that feels like a short book. So um, that's going to be a multi-parter, probably coming out after this two-part series. After that, or probably at some point interspersed with that solo series, I've got um, a good interview with uh, Jonathan Wolfe on the intersection of moral and political philosophy and public policy. And I'll go into more detail when I release the episode. But he's someone who has actually worked advising government bodies on public policy. So he has a really unique and distinctive set of insights there. And then I also have a really good guest booked to do Hannah Arendt, which is something that's been requested and I can't believe that I've not done yet on the podcast. So that's what's coming up in this episode. Those are the resources um I have on the podcast so far if you want to go back and get more detail on some of the topics we touch on. And that's sort of what I've got planned for the next couple of months. So that's about it. Let's get straight to it. This was a really fun conversation, and it's going to be two quite long episodes. Um, so I hope you won't think me indulgent here, but this was fun. This was a fun chat where I think some of the best conversations are where you agree on a lot, but it does seem like you have, you're pulling in slightly different directions and like trying to tease that out in real time is just a fascinating way of doing philosophy publicly. And I think it's a really value added that podcasts can um, bring to the table as opposed to like exchanging 5,000 word essays or something. I think this ability to kind of like jump in in real time um, really sort of adds something to the experience that might not be available otherwise. So anyway, I, yeah, I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I did, and if you do, consider supporting the show by sharing it on your own social media, or if you're able to support in this way, uh, give a donation on Patreon. All of this um, goes out for free and advertisement-free, and as you can hear from that introduction, I love doing it. And I do it for free. Um, but there are some, you know, moderate costs associated with it, which are covered entirely by listeners. So if you are able to chip in a couple of bucks, you know, I'd love to have them. So that's patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast for that. All the other links are on the website, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. Let's get straight into it. It is my absolute pleasure to bring you the first part of my conversation with Professor Robert Tillis.
joined today by Robert Talese. Bob, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Toby. It's, uh, it's, I'm really excited to talk to you. So before we even get started, how do you sort of describe what you do as an academic? What do you like to read and write and think and teach about? So uh, I guess I'm a fairly um, uh, straightforward uh, political philosopher. Um, I uh, worked uh, um, in the earlier parts of my career on philosophical questions about liberalism and alternatives to liberalism, where liberalism here is understood in the philosophical rather than the, the popular sense. Um, so uh, in all of the standard, uh, you know, the standard menu of issues that um, philosophers who are interested in um, liberalism as a philosophical framework might work on, so questions about justice and autonomy, um, uh, the role of community and community identification, um, written some uh, about uh, the role of um, religious reasoning and religious uh, rationales um, when they are used um, to support or propose public policy. Um, so sort of the, the, the core and uh, the, the main thing that I work on is sort of the standard uh, menu of philosophical issues confronting uh, liberal democracy as a philosophical um, framework for thinking about politics. Um, I should add that alongside all of that, and in some ways um, connected to it, uh, is something that's a little bit less common, I think, among um, uh, political philosophers these days, and that I also have this um, abiding, uh, ongoing historical interest in the American pragmatists. So, <laughs> uh, so that uh, has a natural connection with um, uh, the, the work of uh, one very prominent uh, American pragmatist, John Dewey, who has a fairly robust and I think well worked out uh, conception of participatory democracy and um, and the rest. I should say though that uh, my interest in the pragmatists tends to be um, focused on their conceptions um, with respect to epistemology. So uh, my interest in pragmatism is driven by a kind of interest in social epistemology. And I think that um, the um, founding uh, pragmatist, who is a very uh, peculiar man, uh, but uh, also a very brilliant man, Charles Peirce, um, I think gives us... Um, uh, one of the earliest and most formidable social conceptions of um, epistemology. And uh, although Peirce himself um, was, uh, you know, wrote almost nothing um, philosophical about politics or, or, or ethics for that matter, um, he did uh, express pretty uh, despicable uh, views. Uh, he was an anti-democrat, an anti-abolitionist, for example. Uh, and But nonetheless, um, uh, I think that in his social epistemology, there is um, a model of the epistemic enterprise that makes for a uh, defensible and I would say even superior uh, conception of um, what's now these days uh, in professional circles called epistemic democracy. That is that if you think that part of the justificatory story of democracy or liberal democracy, or putting it more broadly, if you think that one of the things that makes liberal democracy worthwhile or choice worthy among options has to do with the ways in which the freedoms and social arrangements that are constitutive of a liberal democracy enable uh, and can pool and make use of knowledge 
um, and help to disseminate knowledge or information, uh, I think that a Persian pragmatist social epistemology gives you um, the cleanest and most compelling uh, account of that connection between the sociality of the epistemic enterprise and the epistemic our epistemic ideals and liberal democratic institutions and structures. Um, so. Um, that is to say, uh, some of my earlier work about 10 years ago was really focused on trying to spell out that pragmatist, Persian pragmatist epistemic conception of democracy. I still work on that stuff um, uh, alongside these more traditional, you know, sort of middle of the road kind of humdrum in a way, <laughs> uh, uh, concerns of, you know, contemporary liberal political philosophers. So it's interesting, though, actually, you say it's perhaps not hugely touched on um but I've, I've i've actually touched on some of that stuff quite a lot on the podcast um okay. so i was just had a wonderful debate with stanley fish about oh, yeah, yeah. like um anti-foundationalism and stuff like that and he was drawing a lot um in terms of his not necessarily political views but like underlying structures of thought from a sort of um American pragmatist tradition particularly rorty yeah. and then i've also had um well, he's not a political philosopher, but Dale Martin, who's a New Testament historian on, and his politics, when we got to that, is sort of quite shaped by the American foundationalist tradition. And, um, you know, this is all conversations I can think of. Another one would be, I just had um, a sort of comprehensive versus um, overlapping consensus liberalism debate with mm -hmm. Kevin Vallier. Who, oh, yeah. Um, Kevin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, <laughs> I think his interests in sort of... Um, thinking about religion and liberalism and so on, um, using that as a sort of moral lens to look at contemporary society in sometimes an empirical way sound quite similar to some yeah, yeah. of the, the themes you're touching on. Yeah, sure. But note, um, just I'm sure a lot of listeners will, will be aware that, you know, the term pragmatism is kind of, I don't know if it's essentially contested, but it's hotly contested as a concept. And so, um, you know, whether... Um, uh, well, it would seem that um, uh, most, if not all, ver versions of pragmatism are going to be friendly to some kind of view that can be plausibly called anti-foundationalism. Now, what anti-foundationalism amounts to <laughs> uh, uh, differs uh, from one pragmatist to the next. And, um, you know, many years ago, there was um, there's a, uh, a philosopher who's uh, originally British but has lived in America for most of her career now, I think, Susan Hawk, um, who years ago published a, um, a short dialogue that was taken from quotes from their respective works between um, Charles Peirce and Richard Rorty called We Pragmatists. And it was just a study in contrast. Like, <laughs> you've got Peirce saying, you know, P, then a quote from Rorty asserting not P, and it went all the way down. And you're wondering, wow, these are both philosophers, very influential, both called pragmatists, do they share any ideas, aspirations, let alone doctrines in common? The answer might just be no. <laughs> so um, my, my, my um, how do I say this in the right uh, philosophic terms? My epistemic approach to questions of political and moral beliefs is so heavily filtered through a sort of... Um, uh, Wittgensteinian ordinary language essential contestability framework that the idea that words mean radically divergent things just 
isn't scary to me anymore or even <laughs> anything necessarily to be objected to. Like, words mean different things and they might have a common core they might have inner family resemblances some like recurring themes but the idea that liberalism it means you know the same thing to everyone of course it doesn't you know and i've I've, i'm just like i think now just through the other side of that keyhole to the point where that's neither a shock or a surprise or something to be overcome right so i i would um uh i would agree with you there as a descriptive matter that, um, you know, again, whether we want to use the language of essential contestation and whether that commits us to something about essences or not is an interesting philosophical question that uh, we might want to... We we need, we we might bracket that. I'll just state, I'll state my position that um, my view is that essential contestability, at least in a modern understanding of it, does not commit you to any sort of hardcore moral relativism. It does, it does rule out some of the more overtly deontological claims, but only, like, the really hardcore ones. If you believe that, like... I'm trying to think an example but if you believe in, like, God-given... You shouldn't shouldn't lie to the murderer at the door or something. Yeah, something like that gets a bit hard. Um, But... I mean, the simplest way to put it is the idea that there are different understandings of words doesn't commit you to the idea that there's not better and worse understandings of words, because words form patterns of meaning which can be assessed for their internal and external coherence. Yeah, and all that sounds um, unobjectionable uh, to me. The um, the, the philosophical sort of devil uh, in the detail, though, of course, is... Um, that of remaining true to, uh, you know, what you characterize as poor Wittgensteinian contribution, um, while um, keeping um, the, um, well, keeping that insight uh, consistent with the, um, uh, both the ability to and the merit of um, disagreement. Right. If we go too far uh, in the direction of, well, uh, you know, sort of like the um, the the Lewis Carroll, you know, words mean what I say they mean, uh, and you, your words mean what you say they mean, then it looks like there's at least looming the worry. It's slightly different from the relativist sort of worry, but the worry that disagreement is either going to be impossible because when we don't make the same noises, we are therefore merely talking past one another. Um, or um, uh, disagreement will, if possible, even if possible, will always be a bad use of one's time because there couldn't be progress made. So I said let's bracket this, but let's actually not, because this is interesting. Um, Here's here's my sort of response to that thought. Firstly, just in terms of my perspective, when I sort of um, cite Wittgenstein, I'm not committing myself to believe every last thing that the historical... Wittgenstein believed, I'm simply referencing a tradition of thought in which he's clearly an important figure. Um, And in fact, I don't think there's any single individual who I would hold to be absolutely canonical on these questions. Now, with respect to, like, the the scope and nature of um, disagreement, I'd sort of make two moves that will not 
will in some sense say that disagreement is inevitable, but not that it's impossible or always counterproductive. The first move I make is to say that languages are shared products and that they exist as part of a community of persons, whatever mm -hmm. that turns out to mean. Good. The second is that individuals can be bilingual or multilingual mm -hmm. with respect to the patterns of meaning that they right. bring to conversations. So, just to take a simple example, if I'm making the case for gay marriage to a strongly progressive liberal, I'm going to use words like justice, fairness, treatment of persons. If I'm mm -hmm. talking to a libertarian, I'm going to say, well, look, we live in a capitalist society that has a regime of contracts, and if two individuals want to contract with each other, they should be free to. In other words, I'm going to invoke individuality, freedom, so on and so forth, right. um, in service of uh, an underlying moral claim that I don't think I'm being deceptive, per se, to use that different language. So sure. the fact that languages are shared... It, it, it rules out some of the stupider meanings. You know, there's mm -hmm. a big pluralism of what freedom means. But if right. I say freedom is a pink zebra, then mm -hmm. I'm just not meaningfully communicating. I have to start with something that at least some people will recognise. And right. then secondly, even accepting a quite radical pluralism of meanings, that doesn't mean we can't sort of switch between different ones in an right. effort to more meaningfully communicate. <laughs> and I think between those two, you can ground an idea of disagreement being potentially, and I say potentially, productive, while also hanging on to the idea that there'll never be some sort of final convergence. Uh, yeah, and I'm I'm completely sympathetic to <laughs> that entire that entire um, uh, project. So um, when I was saying you know the devil's in the details there, it's just that's just the 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 philosophical task before uh, us here. I mean you and me uh, when we adopt this kind of view, um, we are are sort of uh, incurring a kind of philosophical um, um, uh, chore which is to keep mindful of, and if possible, try to make some progress in theorizing the difference, the, the kind of difference or a difference of the kind that you just alluded to between the sort of radical, you know, let everything in pluralism. If I say, you know, freedom is, um, I don't remember what your example was. Freedom Neither is a bulldog. Right. Freedom is a bulldog. Uh, that has, um, that's stretched the term too far. But um, uh, so we need to recognize that there are limits to um, the uh, elasticity of our vocabularies while not um, squelching or unduly constraining uh, terms to the point that um, we would have a hard time understanding the normal philosoph well, the ordinary philosophical disagreements between some of the characters that you were just describing, the libertarian and the liberal egalitarian, are gonna be working with different um, conceptions of the concept of freedom, for example, if we can just invoke that sort of thing. And um, we, I take it, uh, we, we, we need um, philosophy to make it possible to uphold the possibility 
uh, that um, those disagreements are in some way tractable rather than always doomed to bottom out in just a just a difference of vocabulary and therefore sort of an incommensurability where we're just choosing among, um, you know, we're choosing sort of which family line uh, <laughs> among, <laughs> among the family resemblances, right? We're just choosing which sort of line to, uh, uh, to get ourselves into. So a thinker I've been really influenced by um, he was my tutor, in fact, back in the day, um, is Michael Frieden. And oh, yeah. his essential insight, okay, there's a lot, but um, is to say that ideologies are at heart competition over the conceptions of essentially contestable concepts. So just to take right. freedom, you could have a narrow, negative liberty, individual non-constraint sense, you could have a more sort of autonomous and flourishing sense, you could have a republican sense, yeah. so on and so forth, right? Um, and what most of the time we think about with politics is we think people have policy commitments and then they bring in normative language to justify them. And freedom's move is to say, well, what happens to the, our worldview if we turn that on its head and say people have often subconsciously particular normative commitments to what these words mean? And right. that will cause them to perceive policy choices differently. And it's just a different framework to look at the world. And as I've said before, there's actually advantages and disadvantages to both ways of looking at it. But nothing about that framework commits me to the idea that I might not prefer, and just say, an autonomous version of freedom to a negative liberty. Because not that there's any final objective measure that's going to come in. But in order to define a concept, we must relate it to other concepts. Right. So freedom is autonomy, freedom is non-constraint. Okay, well, what's autonomy? And what you'll end up creating is a patterning of meaning. Mm -hmm. And we, can, we are not without tools to assess which patternings of, of, of concept, or conceptions, I should say, are right. more rational or reasonable. No, that, yeah, I'm, I'm on board with all that. And, okay. um, I even think that there's a good empirical reason now just from, uh, from you know, some of what we know, uh, or at least have, have good reason to think we know about um, cognition, uh, to think that roughly that kind of model uh, where, you know, the, 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 what we express as our beliefs about particular political questions about policy are actually the products of some processing going on about that has more to do with our political identity, our social worldview, all the rest. These are the manifestations rather than, um, you know, what we sometimes uh, um, uh, see in textbooks and things, you know, like, think of your answer to, you know, this kind of question about abortion. Think of your answer about this kind of question about poverty and drug criminalization. And, oh, that makes you, you know, an egalitarian or a libertarian or a conservative. Uh, I think that um, that sort of start with the parts and that's how you construct the whole uh, account of at least our political and I would even say moral commitments, and I in my uh, I would say probably more broadly across the board. I think that that is um, uh, a, an unpromising way to understand how the cognition works. I think that our situatedness, our consent of our social identities, do a lot more determining uh, 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 work uh, than um, it feels like they're doing. If that makes sense. Yeah, and I think. 
the danger you're pointing to on my side, on our side of this, yeah. is that as soon as you start saying these sorts of things, you have to immediately start disavowing more hardline forms of relativism because people right. have an instinct that that's where it goes. That's so right. there is a danger on this side, you have to say, X, but X doesn't mean Y, right? But there's a danger on the other side in that the alternative view of the world just doesn't describe the world very well. And you end up with these radical contradictions, like why should someone's position on abortion be very tightly correlated with their position on climate change, that aren't really explicable without reference to a deeper understanding of what's actually going on in our heads politically. No, I think that's right. And, you know, just to give one uh, one other kind of... Um, uh, reason uh, uh, of the sort that you just um, uh, uh, were mentioning, you know, when when we study individuals, and here we're just talking about rank and file citizens. We're not talking about professional political philosophers or theorists or candidates or anything. When you when you know when you ask the guy on the street for his view about some political position, you know, so much turns on how you formulate the question, <laughs> you know? So we are in the expression, in our sincere expression of what we take to be our commitments, um, we're so variable, depending on what look like they should be exogenous, you know, sort of features. Um, so, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with, and your listeners will be familiar with these studies, you know, with people asking, you know, do you believe that the government should protect a woman's right to choose what goes on in her body? You'll get one kind of answer that's overwhelmingly yes. If you ask a slightly differently worded version of that question, you're going to get the same people giving much more pro-life sounding arguments. Like, Do you believe the government should protect the life of unborn people? You're going to get slightly more um, uh, pro-lifey kinds of answers than from that same population than you do if you say, should they protect the the life, uh, the, you know, a woman's right to determine what goes on in her body? And so... You know, these expressions of belief have more to do with, you know, the ways in which we're primed to think about ourselves as social creatures than they do with um, any of the sort of, you know, introspection, calculate, think of your reasons, weigh them up <laughs> you know, and get the answer. Uh, and so if we've got a political philosophy or an approach to political philosophy that treats disagreement or whatever sort of political phenomenon that we're interested in that's connected to the ways in which beliefs sort of converge and diverge, that uses that kind of cognitively, or from the point of view of the cognitive science, simplistic model, um, and doesn't understand the expressive function of um, you know, the expressive uh, act that we're performing when we're answering questions about our political commitments. Sometimes we're merely, in answering a pollster's question, we're merely doing something like rooting for a team rather than reporting uh, a belief. Um, you know, unless we're attentive to those, those um, uh, uh, cognitive uh, sort of features, um, uh, we're gonna wind up, I think, uh, with a, um, uh, a kind of Mickey Mouse view of the political world that um, is ultimately not only, you know, it's just going to steer us wrong if we try to take our political cues in the real world uh, from it. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. And I mean, the other thing about taking um, 
a sort of surface-level rationalism. Or even, let's just say, policy commitments. People have particular, you know, I'm pro-life or pro-choice, I want higher or lower taxes, so on and so forth, right? As the sort of um, first, and in some cases last, part of political analysis, is these are very unstable. They're very yep. unstable over time, and they're very yep. unstable within individuals. Whereas... The example I always give of this is, say you're in a job interview, ten other people in the room, and they say, all the women can leave, this job's only for men. You know something in that case, you, 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 and you put a moral concept to it, and you say, that's not fair, right? Right. Now, you, if you pay close attention introspectively, the word, that's not fair, or just, or right, comes to your head before you put a, a, a logically consistent, rational theory of what fairness is. Now, if you ask to explain it, you'll then start to say stuff about equal rights and so on and so forth. But that came downstream. What came right. online first was that idea that it isn't fair. And that's not, as traditional moralists would have it, a universal feature of morality. Many people in the world, certainly throughout history would have considered denying a woman employment opportunities perfectly normative. So, as a result of our society, our language, or whatever, we have these um, primings, and we know how to use moral words in certain circumstances before any sort of reason comes right. online. And that sort of um, subconscious ideology, if you want to call it that, is actually quite stable. People will evoke it in quite consistent ways, and they'll evoke it quite consistently over time. But the policy preferences that attach themselves to it can be quite unstable both in the moment and over time. And so if you want to get at the heart of what's really going on, it seems to me like there's a lot of merit in starting with the stable thing rather than the unstable thing. Yeah, I think that's right. And again, we could... Um... Uh, we want to keep talking about yeah, this. Yeah, this yeah, yeah. We should get to your book. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, one thing that's been I was like, we shouldn't go down the rabbit hole, and then I went down the rabbit hole. Yeah, but, no, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's totally cool. Uh, uh, one thing that's interesting uh, on this on this point is just think of, um, I forget who I was talking to. I was talking to somebody recently, um, because one, one thing that I heard um, mentioned in the States here uh, um, before the impeachment stuff started up in earnest um, was somebody uh, on one of the news programs um, actually started talking about um, the um, what kind of land acquisition would be required at the southern border of the United States in order to build the Trump wall? And how many people would would have to have part of their land uh, appropriated? How were they going to appropriate it? Some of people who own land on the border own land both on the United States side of the border and contiguous land that's crossed the border. So now they own Mexican land as well. And I had for, you know, ever since, you know, Trump started campaigning on this, I had, it had puzzled me why that wasn't um, a consideration in the conversation about this policy among people who Trump, who support Trump who not are all libertarians but among contemporary conservatives there is or at least there tends to be certain ingredients of libertarianism and certainly a strong commitment to individual rights and a strong opposition to big government coming and appropriating stuff from people is part of the sort of contemporary conservative ideology right 
But this wasn't mentioned. This wasn't a red flag for the policy. And I don't I believe it still isn't. I don't think that it's been taken up as a real like, here's a real question about this. Why? How does the government get the right to acquire all that privately held land? So what this shows, I think, just to, to, to build on the point you were just making, is that not only are the sort of background, what we might call the sort of ideology running in the background, not only is that more stable, and not only are the actual policy beliefs uh, much more fleeting, but our reasoning from the from the stable background to the policy stuff is not very reliable, <laughs> right? We're not really reasoning, you know, because if we were reasoning, conservatives would be less warm to the border wall stuff simply on the grounds of property rights and big government opposition than they have been. I'm going to go for a quote. Hang on. If I can't find it in two seconds, I'll, I'll give up. Okay. Um, <laughs> this is from Bordeaux, The Logic of Practice. And he says, quote, practice has a logic which is not that of the logician. And I think yeah, yeah. that sums it up perfectly. Is There's, a, there's, a, there's not that there's not a structure to these things. There is. And, you know, we could talk more about, like, the ins and outs of conservative ideology and what's really going on there on a deep psychological level. But it's not random. It's right. not chaotic. It's just, right. it's just not what you'd get from a one-to-one -one application of contemporary logic-soaked political philosophy. It's not. And right. you can either bewail that fact endlessly or just sort of say well, that is the water we're all swimming in, you know? Yeah. That's right. And it also, that, that, that kind of point also accounts for what I think is um, a similarly lamentable uh, uh, um, uh, trend, which is a disconnect between, you know, what we're trained to do as professional political thinkers, what my colleagues in the political science department are trained to do as professional policy analysts, what the people in the law school, I'm gesturing to in the direction of the law school here at Vanderbilt here, uh, are trained to do as people who talk about public policy, which is very much focused on a really tightly rational process, or at least this is what the training's supposed to be, and popular perceptions of things, right? The way actual politics gets done, the way people tend to think about policy when they're not, you know, operating under... They're in their role as an academic or as an expert um, uh, is so much driven by things that are out of step with what our training as theoreticians uh, uh, is supposed to um, have um, uh, habituated us to do. <laughs> that there's always going to be this lack of fit between what the theoretician side of us and what the theoreticians among us are doing and what we do, you know, when we're not being theoreticians or what those of us who aren't trained in that way are doing when they're thinking about politics. We're kind of doomed in that way, <laughs> it seems to me. But Well, this is an interesting epistemic foreground, then, for the discussion that we're going to have, and I wonder, it'll be interesting to see if we potentially disagree on the applied, but okay. agree on the theory where yeah. the divergence is coming down the line. I hadn't thought yeah. about it that way, but seeing as we, we, we rolled out the epistemic carpet. Um, <laughs> it's a nice image. Um, so let's, let's, let's pivot to your book then. Okay. Um, so 
the title is Overdoing Politics. By that, you don't no, mean... Overdoing Democracy. Overdoing Democracy, I'm so sorry. Um, so the title is Overdoing Democracy. By that, you don't mean that we need to have less elections or the, the franchise needs to be curtailed. You're talking about the seeping of partisan debates into other arenas of our life, which you see as potentially harmful. Yes. Um, so good. Uh, you know... Um, the book, uh, the subtitle of the book, um, uh, which I had chosen because I thought it would be elucidatory, it turns out, uh, after, you know, uh, having given a bunch of talks to people about the book or whatever, is is, is even more confusing than the uh, than, than the title title, <laughs> which is uh, Putting Politics in Its Place. So um, here's the, the big idea of the book is um, uh, run something like this. Um, uh, in almost every other... Uh, area of life where we recognize the value of big ideas and big ideals, um, uh, you know, capital goods, you know, really important things of value. Um, we recognize that there's such a thing, there, there are constraints. So we recognize um, when it comes to all other things of value that it's possible to overdo them. Um, now, the example that I give, uh, which, you know, people have told me is helpful, so let me just roll it out, um, has to do with fitness, right? So imagine a person who pursues a uh, regime of physical fitness um, uh, to such an extent and with such an intensity, not that she hurts her body, so we're not thinking of somebody overdoing it and that they pull a muscle or something. We're thinking about somebody who pursues physical fitness with such an intensity that um, all other things that she values suffer because the singular focus of her life becomes working out at the gym. And so she loses touch with her friends. She no longer has time to enjoy uh, hiking and walking in the park and, you know, going to music concerts. She no longer reads the novels that she once enjoyed because every moment of her life that is available to her to structure is overtly structured around a single, and let's say for the sake of hypothesis, right, valuable good, right? Fitness is a good thing. We're not denying that fitness is a good thing. But what we are saying is that whatever account you want to give of the goodness of fitness, and you could say fitness is intrinsically rather than merely instrumentally good on this account, whatever you want to say about the nature of fitness's value, I want to suggest, it's intuitive to say, but part of the value of fitness is bound up with the point of being fit. And the point of being fit is to better enable us to do things other than work out, <laughs> right? That is that what, what fitness is good for is, you know, engaging in activities with friends, going on trips, you know, the things that fitness enables us to do, the good things that fitness enables us to do has to be part of our account of what fitness is good is. And when we've got this person who has pursued fitness to the exclusion of everything else, I think we intuitively, and I think um, um, uh, instructively, reach for diagnostic terms. That's where we think about obsession and compulsion. And we would start diagnosing her 
We wouldn't just say, wow, she's just really into fitness. We might say that. Then we'd say, yeah, but there's something compulsive or something pathological about being fit, being committed to one's fitness to such a degree that it's as if the point of the fitness has become the next workout, <laughs> right? The next trip to the gym is the reason why you're at the gym, right? So that's just one kind of example of what I would want to say. We can overdo a good thing by allowing its pursuit to crowd out other good pursuits. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes the crowded out goods are part of the right story of the value of the good that we're overdoing. And what I want to suggest in the book, or the sort of core argument of the book, is that democracy is a capital good, right? In the absence of democracy, politics goes very, very, very badly. And democracy is even, on my account now, has in, is, is good in intrinsic ways, right? The organization of society around the ideal of self-governing equals is, I would say, not merely instrumentally good. It's intrinsically good to have our social arrangements recognize and be organized around the acknowledgement that none of us is another's, well, none of us is, by way of uh, uh, politics at least, another's subordinate or lackey or uh, inferior this is itself an intrinsically good thing about a, a, a democratic order. I would also say part of what it is to aspire to a community of self-governing equals is to subscribe to a pretty robust uh, um, participatory, I would add deliberative and contestatory uh, conception of democratic citizenship. What citizens are supposed to do is take responsibility and ownership for their shared political world by engaging in um, public activities uh, appropriate for citizens. We could talk about what they are. I'm a deliberative Democrat uh, of an agonistic kind, so I've got um, particular views about that. So the actual democracy side of the democratic theory side of the book is, I think, um, uh, familiar, uh, will be familiar to uh, um, uh, those who followed sort of progressive democratic theory. Uh, uh, and I endorse that. The, the thought, though, is that the best way to sustain a robust, participatory, contestatory, inclusive democratic political order is to ensure that our partisan allegiances are the travails of contemporary politics. Uh, our political profiles do not saturate the whole of our shared social lives. That in order to more fully pursue and to more completely reap the benefits of a robust democratic social order, we sometimes have to do things together in which politics plays no role. Now, let me spell that out. This is not an argument that says it's our duty as democratic citizens to 
get to know our enemies and to invite them over for dinner and to reach across the aisle and to be bipartisan. Those things might be good. I mean, we can argue about in particular cases whether they're good or not. You know, I'm not, you know, I don't think that there's any sort of blanket uh, um, uh, uh, opposition or promotion of that that makes sense. A lot depends on the context. Uh, but that's not the argument of the book in any case. The argument is not get to know your enemies and see that they're not so bad. It's we need to find things to do together and uh, because of the, the state of um, our shared social world uh, in contemporary times, we've got to build uh, uh, forums and avenues and sites where we can engage in pro-social cooperative endeavors where we're not suppressing our political differences for the sake of the endeavor, but rather the endeavor just does not call does not call upon our partisan allegiances. Uh, uh, we need to do things together, not where we sort of try to bracket off our partisan divisions, but um, we need to do things together in which our partisan divisions are rendered simply irrelevant because it's just not part of what we're doing. Last point, and then uh, you can do, ask questions or, or, or come back at me on this, um, is that um, uh, the fact that especially in the United States these days, and the book has got a lot of empirical stuff drawn from the U.S. and uh, uh, the U.K., um, uh, the fact that the very idea of a social cooperative endeavor in which politics plays no role strikes us as odd or strained or in maybe to some listeners um, uh, incoherent, uh, I will I argue in the book and we'll argue here if you want, uh, that's a symptom of the problem. That's a confirmation of the diagnosis, that politics has become part of everything we do. Um, so the really small example of this is we can't sit together at Thanksgiving without yelling at each other. Good. That's that's the that that's the the, the existing you know, that that that's the way that the book got started actually right so you know I got the I started thinking about this book and started actually working on uh, the initial ideas in writing it you know after you know after Trump was elected you know I get, sat down I was at, you know I had lunch with a friend who I hadn't seen in a long time and she was like it, she was um, uh, you know unhealthily anxious about the coming Thanksgiving holiday because she was worried that some particular, uh, you know, formation of family members who were going to be present at this thing were going to be unable to have a civil holiday occasion. She was worried that these people were going to come into her home and ruin everything. Um, and we were talking about different things that one might do. Um, you know, to help navigate this, prevent this terrible thing that might happen from happening. Um, and eventually I just said to her, I said, well, look, can't you just send out a mass email not targeted to any particular contingency of the people who are going to come for, for dinner and just say, look, this is a holiday that's all about reconnecting with family and talking about, you know, uh, our years and everything. And I know that there's this looming political result that we've got different views about. Um, and I'm not asking you to sort of bracket that or suppress it, but just let's agree that, you know, we're getting together to do something else that day. 
Just one day is just not going to be about the president and the presidential election. This day is just going to be about finding out what somebody who you haven't, who you're related to and uh, love, who you haven't seen in a year. What have they gotten up to? What's going on with them? Can't we just do that? And she looked at me and she said, oh, no, I, that would never work. <laughs> and it just struck me. I'm like, well, that's worth exploring. I'm like, I could see why it, it's not likely to succeed. Okay. But what? What does that say about the way we're practicing democracy, that it is so obvious to us, or it seems so obvious to us, that the way to function well as a democratic citizen is for politics to be a 24-7, 365 endeavor? And... Is there some analog um, for politics that could be drawn from a broader sort of set of moral considerations that we know are in place with other kinds of endeavors, right? You don't you don't train to to you don't train to run a marathon by running marathons, right? You don't train to be a concert pianist by constantly working through the etudes, right? Some you know, rest is part of a plausible training strategy for athletes, right? Doing other kinds of exercises is essential for you for your musicianship. Um, maybe politics can learn something. I thought from that general idea about how worthy ideals are best pursued amidst. Um, not what we would want to call holidays exactly, maybe not in every case, but amidst periods of attending to something other than the perfection of the piano piece or the perfection of the technique, right? Um, and the more I started looking into it, I got involved in some of the empirical stuff, the more it looked to me as if, yeah, um, in the States, in the UK, in other parts of Europe, more and more of what we do, both together and more and more of what we do in public, that is within view of other people who we may or may not know, um, over the past 20 years, more and more of what we do in these contexts is now read as political expression or a signaling of partisan political allegiances so that um, we're more than ever enacting our partisan identities under conditions where the actual spaces we inhabit in our day-to-day -day lives have become increasingly politically homogeneous. So we're more and more doing things that count as signals and expressions of our partisan political allegiances under conditions where those signals and expressions are received only by people who are just like us politically. Now, that struck me when I sort of saw that, those two things working in tandem. I said, that looks democratically pathological, right? More and more, we're engaging more and more in the office of democratic citizenship under conditions that, because of their political homogeneity, are not properly constructed democratic spaces. 
that struck me as worth exploring as a possible sort of way into this thought that the capital good of democracy admits of a kind of overdoing such that not only do we lose other goods, but in losing other goods, we become less adept at democratic citizenship and therefore become less um, less uh, able um, to pursue the political projects and ends and aspirations that we're devoted to. How's that? That's good. So I've got an idea, actually, okay. here. Um... So I've got an idea here. So we, we spent a lot of time rolling out the epistemic carpet. Good. And then you um, took some time to give an overview of your book. I've got an idea, which is I want to tell a story that starts with our agreements on epistemology and ends with the Thanksgiving table. And I'm going to try and go coherently from one to the other, but I okay. think I'm going to end with a view of the Thanksgiving table. Well, okay. maybe it isn't, but that is subtly different to yours. And so I think what will be interesting is I'm, to the best of my ability, going to try and be as clear and concise in each step I'm taking, and I want you to let me know where you get off the boat. Does that make sense? Okay, so if you I want do you want me to do that in real time? Or in real time. Like... In real okay. time. So if there's something I'm saying that seems wrong, let's pause and unpack the disagreement. Because Great. if we agree about foundations, but I am retaining intuitions that see the Thanksgiving table differently, that might be a, an interesting experiment. So if we yeah, start with um, ideology as subconscious and a sort of pluralistic understanding that... Um, words often mean different things to different people, and indeed often mean different things to the same person, depending on circumstance, right? One thing I think that gives me when I think about political dis disagreement, and this is a, a psychological benefit, not necessarily a logical benefit, is it helps me escape what I think about as liberal despair. So I know a lot of people who are liberal political activists, and they're sort of just say for simplicity, there's two tribes, one which wants America to come together again and have bipartisanship, and one which wants a sort of total socialist victory of the Green New Deal and radical equality and so on and so forth, right? And I sort of refuse to be sucked into either tribe, and that refusal is grounded in my epistemology, because what it really comes down to is they say, but if what you're saying is true, we're neither going to get that total collapse into agreement or the total dominance of one side over the other. Um, because if essential contestability is true, you know, words are always going to mean different things. There's always going to be some underpinning of division, and if there's always going to be some underpinning of division, not only will you not get consensus, but you won't get this final victory moment either, be it a final victory for Bernie Sanders doing everything he wants, it's not to say he might do some of the things he wants, but it's not going to be stable or permanent. And I sort of say, that's actually a benefit to my view, 
because if if I'm hanging my psychological happiness on things that aren't going to happen, that's not sustainable in the long run. Now, that doesn't mean that there can't be change. For instance, it might go that the majority view of what liberty is, just say, goes from a negative liberty sense to an autonomy liberty sense. It might be that, as has happened in the past, the negative liberty people persist, but they sort of shift in what it means and they shift in the other concepts that they attach it to, right? But the goal in thinking about political disagreement shouldn't be a total convergence, it'll converge and diverge again, nor should it be a final victory. It should be, in a sort of traditional John Stuart Mill sort of way, progress. It should be... Well, I think there's, there's three questions you could ask of disagreement. If it's valuable, what is it valuable for? And I noted three. One is epistemic, we might learn something from disagreeing with others. The other is outcome-based, by disagreeing, we might nudge our view more towards the dominant view, we might be able to get more of an electoral coalition behind it, and we might be able to get some, though not all, of our policies enacted, although that enactment is not guaranteed to be permanent. And the final one is growth, and this is a sort of Hannah Redrent-type view, that it just might be quite good for us in certain circumstances to talk to people who are outside of... Um, our, our foundational worldview. So accepting that as like a correct way to think about disagreement, it seems to me that there's two consequences of that. The firstly is it doesn't say disagreement is good or bad per se, it says there's potentially good things that can come from disagreement, which would point to me to way, towards a way of looking at it as not asking is disagreement in this space appropriate or not, but does it conform to a set of conditions which we think it's likely to produce these goods that can come from disagreement? So to begin to bring this forward to the Thanksgiving table, the question I wouldn't say is, is this a space fundamentally shut out from politics? Is, are we approaching the disagreement and are we engaging in the disagreement in a way that is likely to lead to personal growth? in a way that's likely for us to learn more, or in a way that's likely for us to affect some outcome, right? Um, and I think there's, you know, practical steps you might or might not take. But the other outcome, and where we perhaps diverge, is if you do accept that view of disagreement, there is something oppressively totalizing about it. Because if we accept that at the bottom of politics is disagreements about what freedom or fairness, or justice means, and that those are not going away. Well, that means that our political disputes aren't going away, but it also means that our personal lives and our personal interactions will exist on a continuum, and I say on a continuum, not exactly the same as, but on a continuum with our more overtly political expression, because we will invoke, we, we have to invoke terms like fairness as a part of our everyday lives all of the time. And there's always going to be an aspect of, you know, we all the time engage in economic transactions and psychological transactions and legal transactions. We are all the time engaging in political transactions. And I'm pessimistic, if that's the right word, that there is ever a full escape from the political 
in that hard sense. So what does that look like at the Thanksgiving table? We are going to disagree about what is fair, and that might not just be who gets the largest slice of pumpkin pie. It might be um, the people at that table have different views about gender, about the um, acceptability of homosexuality. We, let's just say we as liberals, genuinely believe might be harmful to a young person at that table who then later turns out to be gay or something, right? right? And so what that would point me in the position of is saying, that Thanksgiving table disagreement isn't going away, and the goal isn't to make it go away. The goal would be, how do we proceed with the disagreement in the most constructive way? So, are we particularly likely to get personal growth, epistemic knowledge, and a good outcome out of having a shouting match in front of everyone? Probably not, right? But, does that mean we want our family lives to be wholly depoliticized? I would say no. I would say, and I know many people who've done this, who would say, you know, my parents aren't bad people as such, but they do hold homophobic views. And at some point in my life, I thought it was necessary to sit down with them and say, look, we're going we're gonna to talk about this, and it's going to be a difficult and uncomfortable conversation, but I think the goods that are potential in that conversation might outweigh that social discomfort. Um, so I'll pause there. That's my narrative from epistemology to Thanksgiving. Yeah, no, and um, I would endorse, uh, I think I endorse everything that you just said. So let me just see where uh, I might be able to um, uh, add a couple of thoughts that um, can either help sort of us identify where we might be disagreeing or might um, uh, reveal to us that, um, that we don't disagree after all. So the the story I'm telling about Thanksgiving, um, the moral of that story is not an across the board, right? Don't talk about politics at Thanksgiving, and um, uh, this should be prohibited. Um, the 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 moral of that story is that in contexts where our political divides are of such a kind as to threaten or preclude preclude the realization of some other really important social good that needs to um, uh, needs to be realized if the full uh, menu of democracy's goods are going to be themselves manifest, um, there might be contexts in which uh, we just have to sort of not bracket off our political disagreements, but accept a description of a joint activity which is explicitly committed to, this is not politics we're doing right now. That's not what this is for. This is for something else. Now, I could imagine all kinds of family circumstances in which political disputation over the Thanksgiving table does not threaten any such goods, right? In fact, you know, I know lots of people who... Um, in fact, I have lots of friends. We sit down, we argue about politics. That is never a way of threatening the friendship or of undermining the social goods. Uh, uh, and we disagree sometimes vehemently, undermining the social goods that otherwise a collective meal with friends is supposed to uh, help uh, realize. Um, so I'm perfectly fine with saying there are certain contexts, certain kinds of collections of people where 
you know, all out political disagreement is perfectly fine because it doesn't threaten the other goods. So the, the, the moral of the Thanksgiving story is just that in cases where the partisan divisiveness does threaten some of these other social goods, we should be able to agree, hey, there's something other than politics that contributes to the goodness of our social world. And sometimes we have to make, we have to explicitly make space for those other kinds of goods. Okay, so that's one. Now, let me say this. Um, part of what I want to say is going on in cases where political disputation over a Thanksgiving dinner table is out of place is, you know, remember, political disagreement in a democracy has to always be understood among the disputants as disagreement among political equals, right? So we're never, we're never within our, we're never within bounds as democratic citizens, um, although it happens often enough. We're never within bounds as democratic citizens when we're engaging as citizens to simply tell the other person, because I said so, or, you know, shut up or no one, can, you know, who cares about you? Now, we can ask questions, which we can get to, I'm sure we will, about what are the conditions under which somebody temporarily disqualifies himself from the role of democratic citizenship. Or because permanently. Yeah, yeah, good, 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 or permanently. That's a different kind of set of questions, and we could talk about that. But let's hold that off for a second and just say, look, there are still, within the realm of Except the acceptable bounds of democratic citizenship, there's still room for quite serious and deep political disagreement. Those disagreements with our fellow democratic citizens are always disagreements among equals. However, I would want to argue, there are certain kinds of contexts, certain kinds of spaces, certain kinds of sites, S-I-T-E-S, where the other social dynamics at play prohibit us from either recognizing others as our equals or demanding, asserting our equality. And I think familial contexts are really good spaces where political disagreement is burdened. It has an extra burden in that you get family together, there are all kinds of dynamics, all kinds of moral relations, sometimes not moral in any other sense than that they're just freighted with value, right? We're not, we're not saying moral in the sense that they're admirable. We're just saying freighted with value where it's just hard to assert your political equality given certain family dynamics. Now, I would be willing to bet that you, Toby, and many of the listeners right now are willing to accept as a premise that there are certain kinds of places, certain kinds of spaces, certain venues in which partisan wrangling, maybe even explicitly partisan messaging are out of place. Yes, but I want to do a bit of work with the word partisan. Okay, yeah. but let me just give the example. Let me just give as an example something. I, churches. Sunday morning, you know, church services. People like me, <laughs> you know, the liberal progressive atheist, 
I'm somebody who wants to say, wait a minute, the preacher does, it's inconsistent with the tax exempt status of that institution that the preacher on Sunday uses as part of the time during religious exercise, campaigning, political messaging, telling congregants who they are to vote for. That strikes me as out of place. Here's the reason why, though. Now, we often point to tax-exempt status like I just did. But here's what I think is the deeper reason why. There are certain kinds of contexts where the norms and values that are operative within those spaces are just fundamentally inconsistent with political equality. And communications between a pastor or a priest and the congregants are, I think, paradigmatic examples of hierarchical social venues where you don't get to talk back, you don't get to argue back, you don't get to ask questions. They're fundamentally non, I'm not going to say anti-democratic, at least not right away. They're fundamentally non-democratic spaces. And where there's fundamentally non-democratic, when we're operating within a fundamentally non-democratic space, and it's non-democratic by virtue of the fact that the norms that are in play there are not consistent with asserting our political equality. I think politics has got to, we, we, we have to recognize those spaces are for something other than politics. And when that's breached, something has gone wrong. The, those spaces are, those spaces are paradigmatically political, that you, you are literally going to receive a doctrine now. That doctrine might not mention a politician's name, but... Um, so this is what I want to tease apart, is potentially okay. say the difference between the word partisan and the word political, because, you know, if you are going to a church and you are being told certain norms, let's just say, about the models to live your life by, the permissibility or otherwise of sex outside of marriage, I'm sort of stereotyping a little here, but... Um, Whatever it is, that is a moral doctrine that accepting my understanding of the political as the arena in which concepts are contested is overtly political. And even the, the family around the dinner table establishes or participates within moral norms. Now, that might not be the most important thing that they're doing, but there's this element to me that always wants to push back on the idea of depoliticizing certain spaces. I mentioned Stanley Fish. I had a huge debate with him. Good, good-natured debate, but debate nonetheless about quote depoliticizing the university, which he wants right. to do. Right. Um. So, there's two reasons I want to push back on this idea of depoliticizing spaces, but one of which is conceptual and one of which is practical. Um. Now, I think. Even with both of those, I think there's a way you could square your account with them by somewhat changing terminology. Well, let me make the account first. Sure. So, um, on the conceptual level, the, we are in the realm of the political. Whenever we trade value-laden, essentially contestable terms with each other, which is basically to say whenever we have a conversation with another person, right? Like, if I sing to myself in my shower, that's not political. But if there's someone banging to get in because I'm taking too long, we are having a political disagreement. We are disputing a territory, right? Um, and I think it's the idea 
that you can make a space non-political is illusory. Now, that sort of small p politics is not coterminous with capital P partisan politics. They clearly exist on different ends of a spectrum, but it is a spectrum, and there are lines between them, and they are mutually informing. So that's the first part. The second part, and I just pick this up from my more sort of um, social justice friends, is that they say, and I think there's something to it, that the act of declaring a space depoliticized is in itself a political act. And what you haven't done is take the politics out of the space. What you've done is assert a new set of rules of discourse, which is in itself political, right? Now, the consequence is often of depoliticizing a space is that those new rules of discourse shut out the ability of less powerful people or more historically marginalised people to assert claims, to use your language, assert their claims to equal moral standing. So if we're going to say, to take the case of universities, we're not really going to have any discussion of social justice in universities, that's not what they're there for. You're not making them not political, you're asserting a set of discursive rules whereby if someone feels discriminated against on the basis of race or sex, say, they then have less discursive freedom to highlight or to challenge that perceived unfairness. So those are the two big reasons, and I think they're interlinked, on why I push back on the idea of taking politics out of spaces. Right. Okay. So good. Um, so one thing I, I think that we'll agree needs to be avoided, though, is we can't make it true by definition that non-political spaces are impossible. Now, it might be true that every space is necessarily political, but that can't be a matter of definition of politics. So when you say wherever there's communication, there's politics. Of a sort. There, Okay, good. Now, the other sword is is doing work there that I think we need to interrogate yes. a bit. Yes, okay, sir. good, good, good. So, let me, make, let me introduce a distinction and then make a concession. Okay. So, first, the distinction. So, I would want to keep distinct the claim that everything is political from the claim that everything is politics in the following respect. I will accept and endorse, and I think it's more or less obviously true, <laughs> that everything is political in the following sense. The full explanation for any human thing that we do, have you know, talking over Skype for a podcast, sitting in a chair at a university, <laughs> right, uh, uh, thinking about democracy, um, uh, eating lunch, Right. Any of the things that we do as human beings, or let me put it this way, for any of the things that we do as human beings, collectively, individually, however you want to characterize it, the full explanation of that activity, that endeavor, that intention, that aim, the full explanation is going to involve ineliminable reference to political history, political structures, rules, laws, you know, social forces that are going to be impossible to properly characterize without reference to decidedly political things, governments, laws, constitutions, revolutions, so on and so forth. 
So the full explanation of everything that we do is political or involves reference to things that are political in the same way that everything we do is going to involve ineliminable reference to history, to biology, to chemistry, good, so on and so forth. So I want to say that's obviously true and important to keep in mind. Now, to say that everything is politics, though, I think is a far more puzzling and troubled claim. For one reason, if it's true that everything is politics, then the pointing out that everything's politics but, is also politics, right? Yes, but the, okay. the, 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 but what's what's the the exact contour of the definition between political and politics? Well, let's so. All I mean by saying everything is political is just say part of the explanation of whatever we do together is going to involve references to laws, governments, revolutions, wars, fights over resources, tribal pasts, so on and so forth. Right, but Things then you want to you yeah. want to say there's something distinct from that which is politics. Right, and here's where the concession comes in. I'm fully happy to say, look, when I say we need non-political spaces, what I mean to say is that we need spaces that are not organized around our partisan allegiances. Now, if, and again, just, you know, we're, that the vocabulary that we have for talking about these things is so, um, f so sort of fraught and disordered, I think is a really interesting feature of our lives together, that this really, really important stuff looks like where it's like all the vocabulary kind of, um, starts collapsing once you start wielding it to try to get at things. I mean, there's there's a sinister Orwellian sort of interpretation of that that uh, we can get into if you want. That's what it's designed to do is to obfuscate. <laughs> well, but, or or a, a, a much more benevolent, um, that in order to function, it has to have give, and that it, it has to have a bit of latitude in, because if it, if it could only ever mean an exact thing, we, we'd always be talking past each other. Perfect, perfect, perfect. So um, let's then just I'll concede that uh, when, when we're talking about sort of the, the need for cooperative but non-political endeavors, um, and I think this is, you know, I, I, I sort of make this concession in the book. I, I, I try my best to sort of uh, 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 remind the reader that I mean cooperative, you know, pro-social and cooperative endeavors that are not organized around partisan allegiances because those allegiances, those loyalties, those features of our identity are not suppressed, but just irrelevant. They're just not part of the activity. So, in a sense, just to get the conceptual clarity, when you're distinguishing between something being a political and something being politics, mm. by politics you're effectively saying partisan or by reference to, or yeah. porting that in. Yeah. So that's what I meant when I said I think this will sort of come down to political versus partisan. Good. Now, Good. I, I guess the further challenge is then, to what extent is there a bright, clean line that can be put there? Because if you're going to say that these things are fully able to pull apart, I'd query that. Or there'd be another claim, which is 
They don't fully pull apart, but neither does anything else, and we can still we can still recognise the difference between, like, speaking in English and speaking in Spanish, even though they have a common root language and will never fully pull apart, and we do one in some circumstances and the other in another. Right, so definitely it would be some version of this latter option that nothing really pulls apart in this way. Yeah.